Chapter 10, Part 1, The Tribal Knowledge Paradigm Tools. Over the years, as we applied the concepts of the tribal knowledge paradigm to real companies, we used tools of the trade in unique ways. We borrowed ideas from friends, or we made up our own. Some of these are worth noting. The 120-20 Rule of Profits. There is a corollary to the 80-20 rule that gives us greater insight into the happenings in business. A business turnaround consulting friend showed us this rule. That consulting friend was Don Bebo. He's a venture capital investor now, but in his former life, he was a management consultant who specialized in turning around distressed companies. We all know this rule. 120% of a company's profits come from 20% of the customers, 20% of the salesmen, or 20% of the products or services. We named it the Bebo 120-20 Rule of Profits in honor of Don, who pointed this out to us some years ago. The reason that this rule is so important in developing an effective customer-driven strategy is it will truly allow us to focus our attention on those customers, salesmen, and products that deliver the most profit to the company. It may also provide substantial information to focus a company while it tries to understand why these customers, salesmen, or products are more profitable. Consider this example with one client who had about 100 customers. 40 of these customers accounted for about 90% of his business. The lowest 40% accounted for less than 5% of his business. In analyzing his accounts, about 40% of the bidding activity was consumed by these same 40 customers, the bottom 5%. The drafting department had the problem with these 40 customers, and they had a difficult time measuring profitability. Don't get hung up here. Take the simple approach, so we did. We established that each phone call to a customer or visit to a customer was given a point. Each bid was given 50 points. These then translated into points of overhead. We then used these points to measure how much activity was required by each customer for each dollar of bidding and then measured how many dollars were won. So when the salesman had to decide where they were going to spend their time, They basically went to the customers that had the fewest points per dollar of resulting bids won. A simple formula, but it worked. The interesting corollary to this rule is that the only way for this rule to exist is if some of the customer's salesmen or products or services are unprofitable. Unlike the 80-20 rule, which only deals with positive numbers, the 120-20 rule allows for negative numbers or losses. In the case of the unprofitable customers, salesmen, and products, additional analysis needs to be determined whether or not they're worth keeping. Or put another way, this rule helps you determine whether all customers really should be kept. At worst, you may keep them all, but redefine the relationship with the low-profit customers to make them profitable. Keep them on as customers, but don't spend as much time with them. Make them earn their support. We have a graph in the book that shows a 
a demonstration of what we mean. It shows one, the top quintile of customers at 120%, the next quintile at 50% of the total sales, another at 5%. The bottom 80% were about 20, minus 20%, and the worst quintile is minus 55%, and that all totals up to uh, 100% basically showing the 120-20 rule of profits. In this particular case, identifying the profitable customers allowed the engineering or drafting department to give better turnaround of jobs to the high-profit customers. It meant redefining their relationship with those customers that were not profitable by giving them less service or longer turnaround time for a job. These customers ultimately got it and stopped wasting their time. This freed up the drafting personnel to better serve the profitable customers. We remember a presentation where one CEO in the audience had a grin on his face after we introduced the 120-20 rule of profits. His mind was working and we wouldn't have noticed him if he hadn't made a big deal out of opening his briefcase to pull out a notebook. He started writing furiously. Clearly, his mind was working. Afterwards, he came up, thanked us for our great insight for the 120-20 rule of profits, and he left hurriedly. The next day, he called to tell us what he had done. He owned a business, and he had five salesmen. One of the five salesmen generated 60% of his revenue and about 150% of his profits. One of the other salesmen took up all his time, always complained about the products that they didn't have, the orders that he was going to lose, and so on. The CEO went back to the office, called the non-productive salesman into his office, and fired him immediately. He realized during the presentation that it wasn't that the guy was bad. He just kept the CEO from being able to provide the support to the other salesman. In fact, what he did changed the sales organization to help the successful salesman make more proposals, and the, the other three salesmen support him. It was a good deal for everyone because everyone made more money. Who would know if that was the right move? But he called us regularly to thank us and still takes us out to lunch once a quarter to pick our brains for more ideas. As a corollary to the 120-20 rule, Don Bebo also had another axiom, feed the winners, starve the losers. His position here is that if you have winning products or salesmen, do everything to make them as successful as you can. However, when you have a loser, don't terminate them or end their product development effort immediately. Just cut back on the financial support to see what happens. Sometimes the failure is timing in a particular market, or maybe not enough time to complete the project for whatever reason. But if you have a salesman or a new product that is failing, don't kill them. Just reduce the resources available because there are a lot of successes that failed in their initial efforts and drive dribbling funds to the team involved. You never know. But once you have played that card to its limit, you cut your losses, but not without first trying. This line of thinking fits well with our work with the 567 rule, which we will talk about in a minute. That is, 5% of the effort gets 67% of the results. When a CEO is doling out money for new products, 
he should try doing a product with 5% of the effort that takes 67% of the features. This gets you to the test market quickly and then see what happens. It's amazing how much information is extracted from the market this way. On this subject, one of the authors often refers to his mentor from graduate school, Don McCaskill, who was a former CEO at Warner Lambert. This CEO used to say that it was counterintuitive, but he knew that as a CEO, he was doing a good job when 50% of his projects were successful. His reason for saying this was a corollary to the 567 rule. You never know all that you think you know. When you release a product with the 5% effort, quickly test marking on a small scale, you get good customer feedback. By introducing a scaled-down version of the product, you get more useful information to guide your decision to spend more money on a winning product. Or you might get information that can guide the direction of a re-engineered product from a loser to a winner. The 5% of the effort for small pilots provides the opportunity to do more tests. Good test markets get more funding, whereas poor tests end up in termination or re-engineering of the product. His conclusion was to get more products into play than feed the winners with more money and starve the losers with less money. Good advice? We think so. The next tool, more on the 567 rule, or what we call one sigma. The 567 rule is a subset of the 2080 rule or 8020 rule. We discovered it during the war on waste. We were always in a hurry to get projects completed, and we didn't have time to look at 20% of the problem demanded by the 2080 rule. But we did have time to look at 5% of the problem. When we did that, we kept seeing we were getting about 60 to 70% of the targeted benefit. We called it the 567 rule without really knowing much about it. It just seemed to work, but it really didn't make sense until we stepped back and looked at what was happening. It turns out that what we were seeing was effectively the higher leverage point on the Pareto curve as shown in the curve below. If you apply the tribal knowledge paradigms 567 rule to the Pareto curve below, you will find that 5% cost or effort horizontal axis will achieve the benefit of 67% on the vertical axis. Very simply, the small project mentality creates the point of highest leverage on achieving likely results while gaining experience and know-how. Do the least to get the most. The leverage comes if you look at the ratio of the 567 rule, 5 to 67, or approximately 1 to 13, and then at the 2080 rule, or of the ratio of 20 to 80 to get 1 to 4. In essence, you get three times advantage over the 2080 rule when you use the 567 rule. The key here is that the experience gained by delivering the 5% solution gives you a better chance of success when the project expands to reach for more results, assuming the ROI remaining 
is justified. We think that 567 thinking is the way that you should run a business. For instance, when you develop a new product, deliver 5% of the effort, and you'll get 67% of the feature benefits, and then you can add other features over time. The rationale here is that 5% of the effort gets you to market quicker, and you get the minimum needed for a test launch prototype. The 5% scale prototype features can serve as the foundation for building an aggressive product expansion plan. It gives you a jump on the competition, and you have your progressive plan of features available to quickly introduce new versions of the product. Our theory on new products is that you want to get the product off the shelf quickly and immediately begin generating profits. The problem with most developments of new products is that the engineer is never satisfied until he or she has developed the 100% solution. If an engineer is left to go for the 100% solution, it is most often overshot to deliver 110% to 120% of the features. This is folly and very expensive. Don't let engineers make these decisions. Get the product to the market fast for the strong core of basic but limited features. Use the profits to pay for expansion and improvements and be recognized as an intelligent source of great innovation. Managers and executives that we have worked with need about two seconds to understand why there is a problem letting engineers work to reach the 100% solution. Our point is it will take forever and cost a fortune. So we advise CEOs to get the product out and see if anyone actually likes it or wants it. Once on the market, new features can be added. Of course, you need to anticipate as many of those future features as you can to minimize the costs of upgrades. But if you start generating revenue, you can start adding staff to move to a more complete offering. There are many others more knowledgeable about how to do this, but trust us, if you adopt the 567 design mentality, you will be very successful and profitable. In fact, we have a theory based upon this principle. It is a Sybil Bertain theory of why trade shows exist. It boils down to this. If you don't have a trade show to give an engineer a target for product completion, it would never get done. All of this is based upon the 567 rule, just to get it to market and do it quickly. A number of years ago, one of us managed some engineers that can never get them to deliver products on time. Desperate to get them to deliver a product to meet a schedule that was good for the shareholders, the managers were in a panic. The engineers could care less. Then a bright idea hit. The engineering team was approached and told that if they got the product done on time, the whole team, all six of them, could go to a trade show in New Orleans to make the product announcement. They got excited, and because the trade show was two weeks before the targeted delivery, the product was ready on time. So when you look at the training of engineers, how did they get A's in any of their engineering classes? They did their homework assignments each week on time, and got A's on the tests. But they were trained over four years of college or university work to know that if you didn't get your problem set in on time, that you were in trouble. 
Most engineers look at the assignment to get the product development complete for the trade show as just another deadline like a homework assignment. They get the job done. But if you ask them to get it done to meet corporate profit objectives, they could care less. That's not part of their training. Who cares? That is not by accident. Think about it. How do we ever get anything done? We have a deadline that we believe is critical. In our private lives, we know that if we want a patio finished, we will encourage our wives, or maybe they just manage us the same way that we manage the engineers, to have a party. The patio gets finished. It happens all the time. So after all these years, we know that if you want to get something done, we set an artificial deadline before the real deadline, and then work everyone involved to get the deadline completed. But the engineers and trade shows is very interesting. We went to Comdex in Las Vegas 25 years ago and asked about 25 CEOs, would any of the products that you are showing today have been completed without the deadline of the Comdex trade show? In every case, the answer was no. The trade show made it happen. So our conclusion is this. If you want to get a product completed, find a trade show that is in a city that the engineer wants to go to about two weeks before it needs to be done. Make that a target for the engineering team. Get the product done in time for the trade show, and the product will get done in time for the targeted delivery. Believe us, this works. Again, this is structuring the work environment to elicit the desired result. There is another interesting aspect of the 567 rule, It relates to the Six Sigma stuff that has been touted in the industry for a number of years. It really is interesting to get products created with Six Sigma precision and all the attended overhead of Six Sigma programs. We believe that you get a better result by following the dogma of the tribal knowledge paradigm, but that isn't the objective of this little comment. We have another agenda. In a speech... One of the authors noted that we were doing with the 567 rule is effectively achieving one sigma. Here is what he meant and how it works. In other words, it is our opinion that an organization focused on one sigma is more efficient and quicker to respond to market conditions by getting new and improved products to market quicker than one trying to achieve six sigma. Six Sigma is a worthy objective, but caution needs to be considered when trying to apply it to all business. If you drive all waste out of a process, you will achieve Six Sigma. So we believe that Six Sigma is the end game, not the game. Let's clarify what we mean by One Sigma more clearly. If we take the 67% target idea to the bell curve that we show, we're talking about one sigma. There is a little tongue-in-cheek here because we believe that the six sigma programs are less than successful because they try to do too much. Our observation is that the scope of most six sigma programs is way too grand. They would be better off with a scaled-down approach like one sigma. But take this to heart. 
We believe that every CEO who reads this book should pay greater attention to improvements in one sigma range because they have higher leverage and lead to greater improvement and faster development of tribal knowledge. This is the end of Chapter 10, Part 1.